This morning, I want to share with you something a little bit random. I found last night the uh, instruction manual for my first cell phone. And I thought, of all things, that I would read to you some of this instruction manual. That probably doesn't sound too exciting, but here we go. Okay, so this is how you send a text on the first cell phone that I had. From the manual. Pressing a key repeatedly cycles you through all of that key's options. To enter a letter, press the appropriate key repeatedly until the desired letter appears, because phones back then didn't have keyboards, they just had numbers. So, for example, to enter the name Albert, press 2, press 555, press 22, press 33, press 777, press 8. Man, that sounds complicated when you have to explain it like that. But that's what we did, right? That was, that was what texting was like. I'd stay up all the time texting my friends, pressing these numbers over and over and again. <laughs> Do you think, though, having read this to you, that that's something you will ever have to know? No. Yeah, probably not, eh? <laughs> yeah. Does, does. We wouldn't want to go back to that. It's, uh, it's probably not something you really need. It's, it's old. It's obsolete. It's, it's gone. Put it in a museum. You know, the th <laughs> a lot of people think that the Bible is a lot like that. It's something that's so old that you're just never going to need to know any of it. You're never going to need to learn it. You're never going to use it in your life. In fact, there are even Christians who love the Bible. Um, some would say that, well, you know, since Jesus has come, a lot of it doesn't really matter. It's old. We can forget about it. We don't have to worry about it anymore. But one of the things that we're going to see today, this morning, is that God's Word does matter because God himself never changes. If he did something way in the past, he can do it again today. And if he says that he's going to do something in the future, well, then we just need to go to his word and see how he did it before to know that that is what is going to happen. And that's exactly what we're looking at today. So God says that in the future, there will be a day when he will punish all evil, but rescue all those who put their trust in Jesus. And uh, we're going to see examples of times when he has punished evil, but rescued those who put their trust in Jesus. And so we can be sure, as we read these things, as we hear from them even this morning, that God knows. Okay, God knows how to punish evil and to rescue the righteous, to punish and to save. And we need to be sure that we ourselves are trusting in Jesus for rescue. So let's pray that God would help us to do that. Lord, we thank you as we come to your word that we don't come to something that's old and obsolete, that we don't need, but that it is your word and you are the one who never changes. We thank you that in it we find reassurance of your promises to us today and your promises of what you will do in the future. We pray that you would help us to put our trust in Jesus, just like the people in the Bible did, and were rescued so that we would be rescued as well and enjoy eternal life with him that begins even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we're thinking about false teaching, it's, it's really important that we have God's word before us and you can be checking that what I'm saying is, is actually what's there. So um, 2 Peter chapter 2. If you'd like a Bible and you're brave enough to stand up at this point, there are more down the back there, I think. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, 
actually by the very door in the cupboard are some Bibles that you're free to take away, take home. So don't be, don't be without. So Second Peter chapter 2. We're looking this morning at verses 4 through 10 in particular, but let me read for us from verse 1. Second Peter chapter 2 from verse 1. This is God's word for us this morning. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going, going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Amen. God, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that it would be you who speaks to us in this time. God, we come to you for truth. We come needing to hear from you. We pray that you would reveal more of yourself to us, more of your character, more of your justice and your rescue. We pray this morning that we would see more of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would love him and worship him and trust him and obey him all the more. We pray for his glory and in his name. Amen. Well, there's a lot of judgment in this passage. Uh, and lately in the news, we've uh, seen a lot of, of plagues and floods and earthquakes and wars, things that in the Bible were often evidence of God's wrath. And yet today, when we see these plagues and floods and earthquakes and wars, we, we don't see them as evidence of God's wrath, but rather we tend to see them more or we're told to see them more as evidence of other things, substandard infrastructure or climate change or government corruption corporate greed, that sort of thing. We don't see hellfire and brimstone. We don't hear about it. God's wrath poured out from heaven. And if we do, then it's often as a joke, uh, not something to take seriously. What that really means is that people are proud of the fact that they can commit blatant sin and God doesn't strike them down. Because that just confirms to them that, that God was never really there in the first place. And 
Christians are just are just backward and, and bigoted and hateful. And I, I don't think this is even an us versus them thing either. This is something that, that happens to us as well. We're all in the same boat. We see people getting away with sin. We see the kind of social stigmas in our culture weaken in power. And we see that God does nothing. Or so it seems. And so we, we, we relax. We let our guard down too. God, it would seem, doesn't really care about so-called sin like he used to perhaps back in the day. And so we can, we can be a bit more flexible, a little bit less dogmatic, a little bit less legalistic. We don't have to talk about God's wrath and judgment. And yet, uh, in verses 1 through 3, we see here that Peter claims that these false teachers are bringing upon themselves swift destruction and that their, their condemnation is not asleep. So I guess the question then is, well, are these just empty threats? Is this just something from, from in the past that doesn't apply to us today? Is God really going to destroy these false teachers that we've been talking about over the last week or so? And Peter begins to answer these questions, this uh, perhaps um, objection that people might have to this, this statement that God will judge and, and condemn and destroy. He, he answers these questions with examples. And so this morning we're going to see examples, God's ability and determination to, to judge and to rescue, proven by these examples. Three historic examples of judgment, two examples of rescue, to prove that God will judge and God will rescue. But before we go further, before we get too much into this, this rescue and judgment and false teaching and that sort of stuff, we need to remember why Peter wrote this letter in the first place. His main purpose in writing was to remind Christ's people that in Christ, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 1, that we are righteous, that we have everything we need for life and godliness in verse 3 of chapter 1. We have been called to his glory and excellence. He has granted to us precious and very great promises. We've become partakers of the divine nature. We have escaped from the corruption that is in the world. And so he reminds us that we must pursue virtue, that we would be effective and, and fruitful, as he says in chapter 1, verse 8, confirmed in our calling and election, assured of the rich provision of entrance into Jesus' eternal kingdom. This is what Peter wants us to know. This is what Peter wants us to remember. And he will spend whatever life he has left reminding God's people of the gospel so that they would be established in the truth that they have. Established in the truth that you have, he says in verse 12 of chapter 1. Established in that truth and actively walking in the way of truth that he talks about in chapter 2, verse 2. This way of truth, this, this truth of God's grace toward us, proven in the death of, of Jesus on our behalf and in his resurrection from death and his ongoing work of sanctification in our lives and his ongoing intercession for us before the Father. These are the things that Peter really wants us to know and to remember, and we 
we need to remember these things because we're going to be spending the whole day. If you come back to the evening service um, tonight, we're looking again at the subject of false teaching. Okay, and the warning and assurance of, of judgment on anyone who would lead God's people away from being established in this truth and discourage them from walking in that way of truth. And we are going to hear Peter say some surprisingly harsh things about these false teachers. And so it's important for us to be reminded that this harshness doesn't come from a place of self-righteousness. This is Peter the Apostle. He, he denied Christ three times in the Gospels. Uh, he strayed from the truth that he had previously affirmed in Galatians 2, where Paul says that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the Gospel. Peter cannot claim to be perfect himself in these things. So Peter's concern, therefore, is not to bolster our pride in our orthodoxy. Peter's concern is for the Gospel, the Gospel that saved him the gospel that restored him after those failures, the good news that sinners like Peter, sinners like me, sinners like you, need to remember and return to again and again, this precious gospel of great promises. And so people who deliberately lure Christians away or try to from this precious gospel, they're the ones who face Peter's fury in these words. And they are the ones who will one day face God's judgment. So Peter gives us three examples from, from the Old Testament or from history, moving from the greater to the lesser to prove this point that wrath is coming for false teachers. Um, probably these false teachers he's talking about, as they were telling Christians that the way they lived didn't matter, were also teaching that they would never face God's judgment, that it wasn't actually coming. But God's word tells us otherwise with three examples of judgment. First, angels kept in gloom. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. You'd think surely if God was going to be lenient on anyone, it would be angels. And yet, even angels with their privileged position must face God's justice if they sin against him. So according to Revelation 12, Satan was once a powerful and high-ranking angel uh, who rebelled against God and led other angels to rebel against God as well. So contrary to popular belief, Satan is not the, the prison warden of hell, right? He doesn't serve God in that way. He's not sort of on God's side. That is actually a, a false teaching. Uh, he is going to be cast into the lake of fire to suffer there too. You can read that in Revelation 20 verse 10. So the gloomy chains and, and hell that Peter is talking about here in verse 4 is a holding place where those who are, are cast await their final judgment. So the full wrath of the, the full weight of God's wrath has not come for them yet, but it is coming. So we have angels. Our second example is the ancient world. We turn from, from the heavens to the earth to look at verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. We've seen the, the overwhelming power of floods lately. Uh, the destruction that they can cause and 
Peter here is taking us back in, in history to the events described in Genesis 6 through 8, you know, the worldwide flood and Noah and the ark. The whole world not spared because of ungodliness. And so with the second example, Peter's point is getting clearer. If God would destroy the whole ancient world because of the ungodliness of people, well, then you can, you can be assured that, of course, he cares about how Christians live. You better believe that these false teachers who are trying to convince you otherwise have got it coming. And in example three, Sodom and Gomorrah. We've had the angels, the ancient world, and then Sodom and Gomorrah turned to ashes. Verse six, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, ex- he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So we've had the, the heavens, the earth, and now the cities. Uh, it's an intense account that we get in, in Genesis 18 and 19 of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, let me read just some of that. Genesis 19, verse 24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And this is where the, the term hellfire and brimstone comes from. These whole cities just completely obliterated because of their sin. And Sodom and Gomorrah are powerful examples throughout the Bible, powerful symbols used again and again for God's righteous judgment, his wrath against sinners, which is exactly what Peter is using them for here. So Peter uses these three historical examples of God's wrath against angels, God's wrath against a whole world of ungodliness, and God's wrath against whole cities of sinners to make this one terrifying point. Wrath is coming for false teachers. The unrighteous can be sure of judgment. But thankfully, Peter's not finished there. Uh, If it was all doom and gloom and hellfire and brimstone, we'd be in a pretty helpless position, wouldn't we? I mean, if even angels don't get spared, then what hope do we have? If God's willing to flood not only Auckland and uh, Gisborne and the Hawke's Bay, but the whole earth at once, well, then where can we go? Where can we run from that? If God can, would hurl burning sulfur and, and destroy a whole city in a moment, in an instant, how could we possibly escape? And so it's, it's wonderful that we also have these two examples of rescue. First, there's Noah in verse 5, who is described as a herald of righteousness. And he's preserved through the flood. So even in the midst of this cataclysmic wrath of God that that he's pouring out on the whole earth, he is able to rescue this herald of righteousness, this man who spoke truth and his family. And secondly, we have Lot. So in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, in verse 7 and 8, we also have Lot there. Righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. It's amazing. Lot's described there as righteous three times in, in that short, short passage. 
and distressed and tormented by the lawlessness and wickedness of the city that he lived in. I think, I think it's great that the Holy Spirit carried Peter to write those words. Because if you remember Lot's story, if you've read about him, he does not come across as any of these things. Um, in fact, when God came to rescue him from the wickedness and the destruction that was about to fall on the city, he didn't really look like he wanted to leave it all. He even said some truly terrible things that no father should ever say or do. And so I appreciate that Peter is making it clear here. God is making it clear here that that was just us catching Lot on a particularly bad day. That actually, in reality, God saw him as righteous. Three times righteous. That it's good to know that his soul was tormented by the wickedness that surrounded him. I love that. I, I think it's especially good to know because I know that I definitely have my fair share of bad days. Uh, and so if Lot can have his fairly heinous sin forgiven, then so can we as we come to Christ. That's good news. So Peter has given us these, these examples, these three examples of judgment and two examples of rescue. The judgment of angels kept in hell and gloomy darkness awaiting their final condemnation. The uh, judgment of the ancient world of the ungodly plunged under the floodwaters as punishment for their sin. And the example of Sodom and Gomorrah burned up in an instant as God poured out his fury on the people's detestable sinfulness, which has now become this example of, to the ungodly in every generation since of God's wrath. But these examples of rescue, right, of Noah, described as a herald of righteousness, a teacher of truth, rescued through the flood with seven others, and Lot, saved from being obliterated along with his neighbors by the direct intervention of God sending these angels to save them. So Peter gives these historical examples to prove his point. The point that he's been building to in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. This is Peter's emphatic point. This is God's word for you today. God knows. He knows how. He can do it. He's done it before. In fact, Peter is so emphatic about this. He puts knows first uh, in the sentence. In Greek, if you want to emphasize something, sometimes you just shove it to the beginning of the sentence, and that's exactly what Peter does here. If, if God uh, judged here and here and here and rescued here and here, then knows, knows then the Lord how to punish and save. He knows. You can be sure he knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So this passage with its argument of, of proofs and then conclusion is designed to give us certainty. There is a certain future for the unrighteous and the ungodly. And there is a certain future for the righteous and the godly. Which means that every single human being, including you, is either assured of eternal conscious torment in hell or is assured of rescue from judgment of escape from corruption, the rich provision of entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as it says in chapter 1, verse 11. 
precious and very great promises. You are either under the determined assurance of God's judgment or the determined assurance of God's rescue and salvation. And the difference is not how righteous your deeds are, your works, your life, what you do. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, Jeff McPherson uh, telling the kids, where do you get godliness from? You get it from God. Godliness comes from God. And then uh, Andrew Young's sermon in the evening, where does the ability to supplement our faith with virtue comes, come from? Where do we get that power? We get it from God and his divine power. We read in chapter 1, verse 3, which has granted you everything you need as he calls you to live for his glory and excellence, calls you by his grace and peace to his own glory. So these two assurances are those who have come to God for rescue and those who have not. Those who know God in Jesus and his love and his grace and his mercy toward sinners as he forgives them. The beauty of God who have come to him by faith, come into him like, like going into the ark, Noah and his family, to the safety and pr- pr- protection and, and rescue through the flood, through the judgment. There's those people, and then there are those who will only ever know his terrifying justice. Those who are outside of Christ, who are doomed to be swept away. There's, there's more to it than that as well, actually. Uh, if you put your trust in Jesus, then you are assured not only of rescue on the day of judgment, but also rescue and escape from that which brings about God's judgment. You might notice in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to keep the risk, sorry, how to rescue the godly from trials. There's a little footnote there, a little number. If you look down at the bottom of the page, if your Bible has that, it says, or temptations. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials or from temptations. See, the real trial for Christians is is not actually God's judgment, because we know that we're saved from that. The real trial is to resist the temptation to continue to sin against God. See, Noah was not only saved from the flood, but he was actually saved by God before the flood even came. He was rescued from becoming just like the people that God was judging, whose hearts were only ever inclined to evil all the time. That's what made him a herald of righteousness. Those years of faithfulness to God in a society that loved evil and who probably thought he was crazy for building a giant floating zoo. See, before Noah was saved from the flood, he was saved from becoming like the people that God flooded. And likewise, Lot, before he received God's merciful gift of those angels who came and rescued him and his family at the last minute before everything was destroyed, he had received God's merciful gift of a distressed and tormented soul that prevented him from giving in to sin like everyone else in the city. For all of Lot's failing that we read about in Genesis 19, there's still that contrast made between him and the men of the city because they accuse him of being judgmental toward them. So God knows how to rescue the godly from temptations. Peter, as he writes this letter, as we, as we read 
and study and think about this, it might look like he's kind of fighting a losing battle. Trying to convince these churches in this one last letter before he dies to make every effort to supplement their faith with virtue. To be effective and fruitful and diligent. He's writing in the face of a wave of lies that have already started washing over them. These lies that that Jesus' love means that they can behave however they want. That, that God's judgment is not actually coming. It's not a real thing. Kind of looks like you might be fighting a losing battle. And we might feel that we're fighting a losing battle. As we seek to share the gospel and raise our children and that kind of thing in a world that hates these things. But, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and from temptations. He knows. Jesus, sorry, Peter's hope here is not in these believers' own diligence or discipline. His hope is not in better Christian arguments or arts or schooling or politics or whatever. That these things would turn the tide of uh, indulgence in the lust of defiling passion that it talks about in verse 10. I mean, as good as those things are, his hope is in God. The Lord who knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and trials. Godliness is found in God. And that's where Peter places his hope and where we must as well. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. These false teachers, the the libertines, they uh, would appear to be teaching the opposite of basically everything we've heard from Peter so far. They teach that they, with their, their secret knowledge that trumps the Bible and, you know, whatever arguments you have, it, they know, they know through the secret knowledge that God doesn't really care how we live. That because of Jesus, we just get this free ticket to heaven Our souls will go there when we die, so it doesn't matter even what we do in our bodies. They despise Jesus' authority over their lives, that he has bought them, he's purchased them. They deny also the authority of the apostles like Peter, the authority of the word, the over-shepherds of Christ's church. They, They run up against passages and commands they don't like, and so they come up with ways to get around them. They make themselves the authority, their own desires, the judge of what parts of the Bible are true rather than being under its authority themselves. And people believe them. And why wouldn't they? Right? They're they're smart. They have the title. And more importantly, they're telling me what I want to hear. (laughs) I can be greedy for money, and God wants to help me with that. Right? He wants to bless my finances and give me anything that I lay claim to with my words of power. It sounds awesome. I can, I can reject the authority of the church in previous generations. With, you know, They were just stuck in their ways on their views on marriage and gender and all that sort of stuff. I can be cruel and boastful toward others because God's on my side and I'm made for greatness. And anyone who tries to slow me down is just of the devil. It's alluring. If you can find someone who argues even semi-convincingly that you can do all of that stuff and still call yourself a Christian and still be saved, of course that's tempting. 
It's alluring, but it's not the gospel. In fact, it's the very deception and arrogance that leaves us in that terrifying position of being assured of God's judgment. And these false teachers will get it even worse because the only thing worse than being in that position is being there with all the other people that you dragged into that position along with you. What a terrifying place to be. These lies, they are not the gospel. I mean, even just looking at chapter one of this letter, in Christ we have a faith equal, of equal standing with the apostles. We have the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. We have grace and peace in the knowledge of God. We have all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have a, a calling toward his own glory and excellence. We have precious and very great promises. We have become partakers of the divine nature. We have escaped the corruption that is in the world. We have every reason to, to make every effort to pursue Jesus' qualities. We have been cleansed from our former sins. If you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and submit to him as your King, you are assured of God's rescue, of rich provision of entrance into his kingdom. You don't need anything else. And despite what, what they might say, anyone who tells you otherwise, they will face God's wrath for trying to lead you away, away from the amazing good news that Jesus alone can rescue and save, as we sing. So ignore these false teachers. Discern them, but disregard them. They are destined for destruction. But also, as we think about how this applies, and I say this kind of hesitantly, but don't, don't be one. Um, I hesitate because, because Peter's concern here is, is warning and assurance to God's people okay, of the certainty of his judgment and of rescue. He's warning us away from false teachers, not to get caught up with them, but to instead get on the ark, uh, flee from the fire. It's, it's absolutely coming for them. And that's, that's the main point. And I'd hate to be a false teacher for leading us away from the main point of this text. But as we think about how this applies, I can't help but think of Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, so false teaching. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That little phrase there, speaking the truth in love, we tend to think that that means telling Barriers, breath smells, but just doing it in a nice way. And, you know, we do need to do that. Sorry if there's anyone here called Barry. Um, we do need to speak truth and do it lovingly. But the truth here in this verse is not any truth, but the truth. The truth about Jesus. 
his, his life, his death, his resurrection, his presence with you, his union with you, his grace and love toward you. This is the truth that we are to be speaking to each other if we are to grow up. So no, we are not all teachers, and James 3.1 says that that's a good thing because false teachers will face God's wrath, as we've seen. But we do have this, this kind of responsibility to be speaking the truth about Jesus to, to each other into the, the everyday situations and struggles of life. And yet I think so often we, we tend to fall back on, on just giving advice or like pep talks or really even lies that, that lead us away from Jesus and who we are in him and that kind of thing to what are really false gospels and false saviors. So I guess I just want to encourage us, let's, let's instead give each other Jesus. Even as we talk after the service, as you hear uh, people's questions and problems and that kind of thing, be thinking, how does the gospel apply to this rather than just my advice or my thoughts or wisdom? Let's point each other back to him. Like Peter says in chapter 1, verse 13, let's be stirring each other up by way of reminder. And so, again, I, I say that kind of hesitatingly. I'd hate for anyone to think, oh, no, I'm a false teacher. All of this judgment that we've been talking about is now on me. No, no, you're not liable to that. False teachers are those who set themselves up as spokesmen for God and set themselves over um, his church when really they are vicious wolves. And we'll see more about them tonight and what they're like and how we identify them. No, the, the main point, coming back to the main point, the big idea of this passage is that we would be warned, warned and assured. False teachers face a terrible future from God. So don't let the lack of judgment that we see today give you a false sense of either security or despair. Scripture is there to warn us. God has spoken. A judgment far worse than anything before is coming. You are either under the promise and assurance of God's judgment or the promise and assurance of God's rescue. And he knows what he's doing. He knows how to rescue the godly. He knows how to punish the unrighteous. And the only difference between those two groups is that the people in one have put their trust in Jesus as their savior. They have entrusted their lives to Christ. So the question is, have you? Have you? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this assurance that you give us, that you know what you're doing. God, we can look at the world and think it's out of control. We can look at the church and think it's small and failing and weak, but you know what you're doing. And you've given us this assurance this morning that you will punish the unrighteous and that you will rescue the godly. But Lord, we know that by nature, we are the unrighteous. We are the ones who've deserving of your wrath and judgment. And so we thank you that you have made a way. You, O oh Lord, have made a way, the great divide you healed. That as we come to Jesus and we entrust our lives to him, give ourselves to him, we have salvation. And we become assured of your ability and determination to save. We pray also that you would help us to flee from temptations. We thank you that you also provide rescue from those. And we ask as we continue to worship you and to build one another up and encourage one another this morning and throughout the day, 
Would you please help us to have you in mind and to point one another back to you? Help us in this, God, we pray, that we would be built up into our head into Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.